0: Well, welcome to uh, Westpac Economics uh, podcast, uh, where we talk about the highlights from our research report, our monthly research report, Market Outlook, that was released this week. Today, uh, I have Andrew Hanlon, who will be talking about the investment outlook, Justin Smirk on employment, Matthew Hassan on the hot topic of housing, and Elliot Clark, who will be talking about our views on the US economy. Um, let me start by uh, setting out some of the forecast changes that, we've, uh, that, we've, that we have uh, adopted in this, in this report. And it's been quite a while since we've changed our forecast and so it's worth going through some of those details. In this month's publication we have uh, revised our forecast for bond rates and the Australian dollar. It's quite significant because we haven't actually changed our bond rate forecast since early November and we haven't changed our Australian dollar forecast since August last year. With regard to the bonds, uh, back in November the, the the bond rate was 0.8% and we're expecting it to get to 1.2% by the end of 2021. Uh, we're now forecasting that the US 10-year bond rate will reach 1.5% by the end of 2021. That's driven by our revised, upward revised view, with re- particularly with regard to the outlook for the US economy. So rates have already moved. They've moved from that 08 that we saw back in, uh, in, in November to 1.1%, and all of that movement has been in terms of the inflation component of the bond rate. So there hasn't really been much movement at all in terms of the so-called real component of the bond rate, which is directly related to growth. So once we start to see the market getting a lot more confident about growth, and Elliot will talk about our revised growth forecast for the U.S., that's going to lead to further upward pressure on that US 10-year bond rate. For the Australian bond rate, uh, because the Reserve Bank in announced a f- an extension of the QE program, and we expect there to be further extensions over the, over the course of this year, uh, that margin between Australia and the US will hold in fairly tightly. So for 1.5 for the US at the end of 2021, we've got 1.55 for the Australian uh, 10-year bond rate at that time. On the Australian dollar, uh, back in August last year, the Australian dollar was at $0.72 and we had been forecasting $0.75 by the end of 2020 and $0.80 by the end of 2021. We've now lifted those forecasts to $0.82 by the end of 2021 and $0.85 during uh, around about the middle of 2022. The arguments that we gave you back in August still hold, and that is that the stages of movements in the Australian dollar tend to be quite long and related to developments in China. So we've really only seen one period where the Australian dollar only moved in the same direction for, say, a year or less, and that was after the global financial crisis. After that, since then, two, three, four-year cycles have been the more, more likely. The Aussie bottomed out in March last year, so we're very confident we're Targeting at least March to June 2022 for this next cycle, uh, and we're looking at around that 82 cents for the Aussie. Uh, why are we looking for stronger growth? Well, we're, we're looking for a rise, uh, a rise in in energy prices, and the fall we're expecting in. Uh, commo- in uh, the iron ore price is less than the market's expecting. So while the commodity price story will remain fairly stable, we think it's a better story than the market's expecting. We've also got a situation where the our fair value for the Aussie dollar is now, uh, the level of the Aussie is is well below the uh, midpoint of our fair value range. So there's scope for the Aussie to move through that fair value range, particularly as markets become more confident about risk and that of course is, relates back to that story about the U.S. economy and the global growth story in particular. So they're the two they're the two factors behind our movement in our forecasts. I'd now like to say a few words around um, uh, the the developments from the Reserve Bank last week and, and the growth story. So last week the Reserve Bank um, extended their QE program, and that's a, a forecast that we actually gave you back in early December when the market was. Very, very sceptical about the extension of the program, and even up until the announcement last Tuesday, uh, there was market expectation uh, that the RBA would either taper the program or and some people are indeed thinking that they might actually uh, uh, desist from it altogether. but we we were quite confident that they'd want to send the right signal that they're supporting the economy. Um, the growth forecasts that the RBA introduced are now pretty much in line with our own. Um, um, we, were, we were forecasting that the economy would contract by 2% in 2020. They had 4% contraction. They're now back at 2% in line with our forecasts. We have been forecasting 4% growth in 2021. RBA was at 5 because the the hole in 20 was considered to be higher than, larger than they now expect, so the bounce back won't be as fast. They're now at 3.5%. We agree that the activity in the economy will be back at around Uh, pre-COVID levels by the June quarter, we also agree that the unemployment rate will be at 6% by the end of this year. Um, uh, It's currently 6.6%. We think there'll be a a pause in the fall in the unemployment rate in the first half of the year uh, and a better better outcome in the second half. And Justin will say a few more words about that uh, later on. Consumer sentiment was quite important yesterday. It was lifted by 1.9%. So at 109, it's very, very close to the 112 we had in December, and December was a 10-year high. So the consumer remains extraordinarily confident, and that's very important because what we've seen is that during the June and September quarters, the consumer uh, accumulated a large buffer. As you know, their savings rate went up to around 20%. Reserve Bank estimates that at being $200 which is 15% of income so what the consumer does with that accumulated buffer is very important for the economy this year and so if you have a very confident consumer then you're more likely to see that buffer being used than if the consumer is uh, is lacking in confidence So the signal around consumer sentiment, very important. And just let me remind you that it was the sharp recovery in consumer sentiment last year that was really the first signal that we saw that the Australian economy was likely to do better last year than most people were expecting. Uh, The other point that that I wanted to note is the Reserve Bank's forecast for interest rates. They're still very much of the view that they won't raise rates for three years. Uh, and they'll link that with wages uh, wages and inflation. And the inflation target that they have, 2 to 3%, is, is unlikely to be met according to their forecast and our forecast for many years. But they think to do that, you're going to need to get wages growth of between 35 and 4%. And yet their forecast for June 2023 is only 2% for wages growth. So I think that if you really ask them when do they think they'll get their wages target, you're talking about 2025 or longer. Uh, Now, the Reserve Bank doesn't need to make that commitment as far out as that, but what I'm saying is that this year the market will be looking for them to scale back their commitment on how long they'll keep rates at that 0.1%, and my view is that the market will be way too soon in terms of detecting the reserve Reserve Bank's expectations around those rates. So with that, let me hand the discussion over to uh, the rest of the team, and my first question will be to Andrew Hanlon, and I'm asking Andrew about the mood for business. I pointed out that we think about three percentage points of the four percentage points of growth this year will come from the consumer, but business obviously still is very, very important to the Australian economy. So Andrew, how's the mood of business, and what are the prospects for business investment?
1: Yeah, hi Bill, thank you. Um, So certainly we've seen a lot of improvement in the economy. One area yet to turn around is business investment, so it's it's worth considering what we can expect on that front. Um, We can certainly say that the business mood is positive. Um, Confidence readings are well in the optimistic zone. Um, We saw an improvement um, through the second half of last year as Australia had success in dealing with the virus. Um, and certainly kicked higher in November when uh, Victoria emerged from their second lockdown. Um, and as we start this year, 2021, business confidence is elevated. Of course, that's are supported by the fairly brisk reopening of the economy, the upcoming vaccine rollout, and of course, um, with the benefit of policy support, consumers are out there spending. And since this other colour, we can say that um, the mood of positive mood is broadly based across the nation. Uh, we see positive mood in each of the states. And that's pretty true also across industries, uh, board based optimism. The one laggard would be recreational and personal, which of course has been hardest hit by uh, COVID. And some of the remaining COVID restrictions are still impacting their. Including the closed international border, but even in that sector recreational and personal we've seen some improvement um, So what can we say about business investment? I guess the first point would be that the, um, the downturn to date hasn't been as deep as expected And with the economy surprising to the upside, I think it's reasonable to argue that the downturn is unlikely to be as protracted as feared So we have in place positive mood Profits have been rising, again, supported by government uh, policy. But the one lingering factor, of course, which, as you'd expect, coming out of recession, is excess capacity. Uh, So certainly some improvement there, but it's still um, uh, a weaker position than we started going into COVID. And even prior to COVID, we've had um, some deteriorations, the economy slowed, that haven't been turned pre-COVID. And as you know, unemployment's uh, around 6.5%, well above its pre-COVID levels. So it's a similar story. There is excess capacity in the economy. Uh, so that will continue to weigh for a little time on the investment outlook. So what are our central case forecasts? Uh, we see investment beginning to stabilize in the first half of 21, then a gradual recovery emerging from the middle of the year. For the year as a whole, we have business investment up around 2.5%, and then starting to accelerate in the first half of 22. Uh, it will be led, of course, by equipment spending. Um, but the construction side certainly still some downsides, Some material downside approvals very weak, double digit declines in, in the uh, non-res building, as you'd expect. Infrastructure approvals are down as well. Um, the other area, of course, that's going to impact around uh, the size and timing of the upswing is around federal government policy. Again, they've got some very aggressive tax incentives which will pull forward spending ahead of uh, the middle of 2022. So let me just wrap up by saying that that sort of central case profile that we have for business investment, stabilising the first half of this year, turning around for the middle of the year, I think that's a pretty good outcome given the size of the shock that we've experienced uh, to the economy. Let me just leave it there.
0: Thanks Andrew. That's pretty encouraging. Um, But as I said, most of the growth we're going to see this year will be coming from the consumer. So justin, uh, let's let's now switch to the all-important topic of the jobkeeper, and with the confirmed ending of Jobkeeper in March, which is expected to be around a million people still on jobkeeper, mm-hmm. why we're we not expecting to see a pop higher in the unemployment rate around about that time.
2: It is a really good question, Bill, because I mean, we are talking about that million people still on JobKeeper. Um, there's three main factors that we're looking at that's sort of driving this. Um, we could take the easy route out and say participation, which has been really uh, volatile, uh, it, it collapsed as the jobs were collapsing and now it's come roaring back as jobs come roaring back, will be part of the story. While it will be part of the story, I think that's really not the significant part. Um, two things that really stand out that give us a little bit more confidence is um, the collapse in number of people who are working zero hours. If people remember back in April that hit a level of around 780,000 people who were employed but registered working zero hours. Normally that varies between 50 and 70,000 a month Um, so that was a huge rise and that's the whole impact of the JobKeeper subsidising work. In December that was back at 85,000. So much more around a more normal level so there's not a lot of people being kept working who are not being actively employed, that's a positive sign. Also we've been looking at the industries and as you would know, manufacturing had a large part of the reason why employment is still lagging behind where it was back in February, Um, manufacturing employment is down about 75,000 and of that more than half of it is due to a 20% fall in food processing. What we're seeing in manufacturing is a lot of disruptions happening with the um, COVID events. They've been sort of shifting patterns around, shutting down certain industries. Food processing, particularly um, meat um, manuf- meat processing, abattoirs were a very hard hit. And as the whole sector's been reopening up, as we've been moving through, um, through December and through January, we've been seeing some improvement, as Andrew's been highlighting with the business surveys, coming through those sectors. So we think that underlying momentum of the improvement we've seen um, through the opening of the economy, and particularly coming through Victoria as well now later, um, is going to be the driving force and allow this, the um, rise in underlying employment to offset those job losses that are going to be appearing through the ending of JobKeeper. Probably just a big, cave. quick caution though, um, this is talking about a big macro national average type situation. We will be seeing differences by industries, um, so of course industries that have been highly supported by JobKeeper such as Arts and Recreation are probably going to show a higher rise in um, number of people being unemployed or for further fall off in employment. And in certain sectors too, like in certain uh, hosp- hospitality, tourism sectors that are much more linked to um, uh, the international tourism, probably also going to be some losses there. So that's where they're going to pop up, offset from the job gains, also probably going to appear in some regions, perhaps areas like Cairns, which are more exposed to international tourism, aren't going to do as well as other areas that are exposed more to domestic tourism. But overall, the national number is just going to, is going to be holding unemployment perhaps a little bit bumpy through the next uh, three to four months, but holding around current levels before they start improving down towards 6% at the end of the year.
0: Thanks, Justin. And I think we are making a very clear point to our customers that with the government being in a very strong fiscal position, even though the the debt has blown out a long way, the cost of funding the debt has been falling, Mm -hmm. uh, there should be scope for targeted support for certain of those industries that you mentioned. Can we now talk about... Can we now talk about the hot topic of housing? So Matthew, I've got a couple of questions for you and um, we'd love to spend the whole session on housing, but you've got a short period of time to give us the gems that you're thinking about. The first one is the price rebound. Um, It's pretty much established now. We've we've had for some time had a 15% call for dwelling prices over the course of the next two years. Uh, but what trends are you seeing in the more detailed data and how do you expect these to
3: unfold in 2021? Yeah, definitely any lingering doubts about uh, the upturn in housing have vanished over the last couple of months. We've got rising turnover, finance approvals, construction approvals and prices. They're all pretty much in sync, showing a, uh, a broadening upturn. Um, across the major capitals now, prices are just a smidge below their pre-COVID levels. And what's interesting is your know, wider all-Australia measure is now 1% above its pre-pandemic level and pushing new record highs. And that speaks to one of the clear themes in the detail, which is the outperformance of smaller capitals in regional areas. Whereas uh, Sydney and Melbourne prices are about flat on a year ago now, uh, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth and Hobart are all up uh, on a combined basis are up 4%. Uh, And the smaller capitals, so the likes of Canberra, Darwin and other uh, metro areas, Gold and Sunshine Coast, they're up closer to 10% on a combined basis. So these areas are all sort of largely unscathed by local COVID uh, disruptions and are clearly outperforming at the moment. Uh, the other theme that's really showing through is that uh, within Sydney and Melbourne uh, we're seeing a underperformance of units and, and high rise in particular. Uh, prices in these segments are still slipping lower at the moment, uh, and there looks to be little improvement in sight uh, with uh, border closures restraining demand, uh, rental vacancy rates still elevated. Uh, I think that the broad pattern should continue for most of this year, uh, but as the vaccine rollouts uh, bring the pandemic under control, Uh, and virus risk receipt, uh, those major capitals should start to come back online. We'll see a return to functioning, uh, and that should see Sydney and Melbourne start to look a little bit better, although obviously that migration piece is pretty important over the medium term.
0: Thanks, Matt. Uh, Look, you mentioned that we've got a a strong build-up in uh, a new building, major boost from the Home Builder Program of the government. Uh, Obviously, that's helping in the near term, but is there any danger of overbuilding and oversupply out in the future?
3: Look, there's definitely an area to watch. Uh, It's more of a risk through this cycle than previous cycles. Uh, You know, the border closures have sharply reduced underlying population-driven demand for new dwellings. So prior to COVID, we would see this rising about 170, 180,000 a year. Uh, With closed borders, uh, they're more likely to be averaging around 100,000 a year, perhaps lower uh, if they stay closed for longer. Uh, And we're going to be adding well above that figure uh, this year. Uh, The government's home builder scheme alone has seen a take-up of 60,000 applications. Uh, We'll be building around 170, 180,000 dwellings uh, this year. So we. Are running ahead of that underlying demand near term. Uh, that said, there's a few reasons to be a bit comfortable. Uh, we're coming from a starting point where, across the wider metropolitan areas, there still looks to be a deficiency. We have seen strong building over recent years, but that's been catching up for a, a decade of lost, uh, a lost decade of underbuilding. Uh, so we're still in catch up mode relative to that deficiency. Uh, and some of the recent numbers on approvals are, are also being amped up by the home builder pull forward effects. So we saw new home sales spike 90% in December, uh, but they slumped in January, we're actually 40% below their November level. We had a, a, a wind back in the support from 25,000 to 15,000 grants at the end of December that uh, has probably exaggerated some of that strength. Uh, thirdly, I think, and this one's pretty important, the supply looks to be coming on in areas where demand is strong rather than weak. It would be much more concerned if we're about to see a huge wave of high-rise completions coming onto a market where demand is dead and vacancy rates are elevated. So I think at least, you know, the complexion of where the supply is coming from uh, is a little bit supportive. But, you know, this is still a big risk and, and the numbers in terms of the reduction of migration and flows are large enough that uh, we will need to continue monitoring uh, this risk and longer that we go on uh, with closed borders that the higher this risk of an oversupply down the track becomes. Thanks Matt and finally Elliot I led off this morning
0: uh, with the increase in our US bond forecasts and related that to uh, a better outlook for the growth story in the US uh, which will push up uh, real yields that still haven't moved. Uh, Can you uh, now tell me uh, with the elections clearing the paths for stimulus and risk related to the pandemic dissipating, how strong do we expect the US economy to be in 2021? And
4: are there any risks? Thanks, Bill. Uh, yeah, it certainly has been quite a change of scene for the US economy, Um from to the end of last year into this year. Uh, so just to give a sense of scale around COVID, uh, we moved from seeing 250,000 new cases a day uh, in early January uh, down to about 100,000 currently over the last week on average. Uh, so obviously, there's a very significant decline. And really, this is only occurring as the vaccine rollout starts up. We'll see a much greater ramp up of that that vaccine process across the nation, which will then drive those cases down lower and really allow for the opening up of the economy. That's a very significant positive for the U.S. economy as we look forward for 2021, and then obviously as a stepping stone to 2022 as well. The other point you mentioned there, and also in the introduction, is around the ability to move through Congress um, the stimulus that that President Biden has. Put forward uh, so obviously now with, with the, the by-elections um, going the Democrats way uh, for the Senate uh, that's then allowed them to have a control of Congress uh, and therefore we, we are expecting that 1.9 trillion uh, of stimulus that, that president Biden has put forward to largely move through um, with limited restri- uh, limited changes they're uh, probably ending up with about one half to 1.6 trillion worth of stimulus coming through uh, supporting the economy um, so obviously that that combination of the the economy opening up, and also households having quite a significant amount of cash to actually go out and spend should be quite a heady combination uh, to really accelerate uh, momentum uh, through the economy. Uh, it's important to I suppose note here as well that the, I guess the intention behind this uh, stimulus so whereas a lot of the stimulus was provided last year was really about um, getting the economy through a period where it wasn't really able to function. this is really about now trying to reset the economy and provide it with a stimulus that needs to get yeah, somewhat back to normal. Uh, so effectively, what this really means is it was likely to see very strong growth around services uh, consumption, uh, which has been uh, held back uh, materially, obviously, by, by the restrictions that have been in place across the nation. Uh, whereas you've seen uh, yeah, uh, durables and non-durables well above their pre-COVID levels for quite a long period now, the services is well below, and there's a lot of capacity there for a strong growth there. Uh, equally, on the stimulus front, you could argue that uh, you know, this, the provision of cash uh, currently and the optimism that it creates uh, really will help to feel, to feel quite positive about the recovery. And therefore, as you start to see any incremental you know, rise in rates, as we've already seen, and we expect to see going forward a bit more, that won't impact the expectations around sort of affordability concerns about the market uh, for housing. Uh, and therefore, you'll see a quite strong uh, sort of... continued growth both in terms of prices in the housing market and also thinking about uh, construction there as well. Um, So that will provide an additional fill up for, for growth uh, the other point to note is that if you have that combination of strong household demands so both consumption and, and res investment, uh, that should lead to other sort of positives for for business investment as well, uh, which is really becoming quite focused on the, the state of the consumer uh, and the state of domestic demand uh, as being its kind of the the force behind it um, and sort of dictating what how strong that can be. Um so all in all, Uh, We're likely to see a broadening of growth across the U.S. economy um, with consumption leading the way, but other sectors are doing quite well. And the net effect should be that we'll see growth uh, towards 6% annualized through the the, the nine months uh, between April and December this year. Uh, And that should give us an annual growth rate of about 4.7%. In terms of the the risk to that view, uh, I think with regards to COVID, um, you know, the role of the vaccines, uh, and also on the, the effective stimulus, um, they are definitely to the upside. Uh, so you can easily, uh, you know, draw a conclusion that we see a more rapid recovery in the labour market, that, that combined uh, you know, a cash injection plus just the relief and optimism that the the, uh, the change in terms of the, the COVID situation will provide, could see, you know, growth brought forward um, and equally be larger than we are currently anticipating. Um, I guess the one risk that's been kind of raised as to whether uh, of downside is whether you know we might see um, interest rates move higher more quickly uh, and then that actually kind of curbed the recovery uh, before um, it's really done, it had its effect and gotten uh, GDP back to uh, where it was previously or ideally, I suppose, back to its potential path. We don't really see that as being a major risk currently and I'll just kind of note uh, that we had Chair Powell speak overnight at the Economic Club in New York uh, he was very clear that um, they're, they're looking to re- regain full employment um, and they're not particularly concerned about inflation. If anything, they're worried about the downside risk to inflation given the kind of the history they've had of not being able to achieve on that target the consequence of that policy is the Fed funds rate is going to remain on hold for a number of years, and they're only going to react with the Fed funds rate once they actually achieve full employment and feel that inflation is going to be at or above that 2% target for a sustained basis, a sustained period. Um, with, regards to, with regards to QE as well, that's only likely to be tapered, um, uh, sort of, quite slowly, and therefore, again, there shouldn't be uh, too much of a rapid rise in, in yields. So we are talking about them you know, rising up, as you mentioned in the intro, Bill, uh, but they're still only I mean, kind of going back to the, sort of the lower to middle part of the, the pre-COVID range, uh, which historically is still a relatively low level. And so, again, that should lead to quite positive financial conditions over 21 and probably 22, um, and therefore that gives a strong foundation for, for growth over the period.
0: Great. Thanks, Elliot. And and thank you for the other speakers. Uh, and we hope that you got some uh, benefit out of that discussion. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye.